1: Hello and welcome to the How to Academy Podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christadoulu. My guest on this episode, Kelly Link, is the author of ludicrously acclaimed, genre-defying short story collections, including Magic for Beginners and the Pulitzer Prize nominated Get in Trouble. And now, after almost three decades at the top of her game, she's written a novel, The Book of Love. It's a fantasy, and it's a romance. It's very funny, smart, and already certain to be one of the books of the year for both literary and genre critics. I sat down with her last week to chew the fat. Enjoy. Introducing you as debut novelist Kelly Link, while technically accurate, does feel disrespectful. It sort of implies that you're learning the ropes still when you're actually acclaimed as one of the greatest short story writers in the English language and have been for 30 years, I think it's fair to say. Why did you write a novel now? Uh, Are you just fed up with people asking you when you were going to write a novel? Are you fed up with people asking you why you've written a novel?
0: That is an interesting question. You know, I was was joking with somebody the other day that perhaps if I write a second novel, I will call it my debut novel, just to really uh, mess with people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, in part, I think people who write short stories, uh, like me, who feel that short stories are their medium, you do, you are asked over and over again uh, if you're going to write a novel. And even if you have no intention of writing a novel, I think having the question present over and over again, it's not a bad thing. It's it's good to be asked questions to which you know at a certain point, your answer is no. Because at some point you may investigate the way that you feel and think. I didn't feel like it then, but I, I think I do now. Uh, I really, I like being asked questions. I like, I like thinking about whether or not my feeling about doing something has changed. I, I am a short story writer. Many of my best friends are novelists, and so I am often in the company of people who are working on really interesting. Long length narrative. And, you know, that's another factor. If you are talking to other people about the projects that are novels, um, if like me, you have a small press and you publish novels and you get to work on those novels as an editor, even if my heart is in short stories, uh, I have spent a lot of the last 20 years thinking about novels.
1: What did you learn about writing from the process of creating this very, very big book? You should say it's, it's not just the size of a normal novel. It's, it's a couple of novels length, I would say. Um, even even within the fantasy genre, it's, uh, it's a big one. Uh, and did you learn anything about yourself as a person? I think I learned that I am a maximalist. Uh, and maybe that will
0: change at some point. But my short stories are pretty long for short stories And one of the things that a a friend pointed out, the novelist Holly Black was that my stories were not just long, that they were getting longer. And she, the thing that really convicted me, she said, if you don't write a novel on purpose, you will write one by accident. And I don't know why that sounds so terrifying. Um, but it really did. And, you know, the thing about writing generally and, I've been told this is especially true for novels is you are always in some sense, a debut novel uh, writer that the act of writing a novel is the act of figuring out how to write that particular novel. And it doesn't necessarily teach you anything about what the next novel will be like to write. In fact, um, I think sometimes sometimes, writers like me, uh, you the next thing that you work on, you are doing in some ways as an act of defiance against the thing that you just did. So I finished this novel and I thought, well, the next novel that I write, it's going to feel a lot like a short story. I'm going to make it as short as I can. But with this book, I think what I thought was, I want to do all the things that I can't do, even at 12,000 words at length. I want to do things that only a very large book can do. And, and that, was, that was a lot of fun. It's always great to feel new at something. Uh, in some ways, it's terrifying, but also it's, it feels like there's a lot of stuff still left in the world that, that you can uh, sit and think about and, and, and try to do.
1: Picking up on that, You've been nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. You won a MacArthur Genius grant. Did you feel the weight of the world's expectation when writing the Book of Love? And and did it affect you?
0: Uh, Yes and no. Uh, When I began writing short stories, what I really wanted was to be published in pulp magazines, magazines like the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, Asimov's. Uh, I have a deep and abiding love for heart of genre, science fiction, and fantasy. And it has been a happy surprise to me that one, the world kind of changed as I, as I wrote that books that drew from genres like science fiction and fantasy began to be taken seriously that writers who had written wonderful, uh, realistic fiction began to draw from the things that they loved about science fiction and fantasy. So the market really shifted and the kind of cultural attention uh, and criticism that fantasy and science fiction get shifted. And I've benefited from that. But I have to say, things like the MacArthur, being a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, that that has had a very surreal that's it's a surreal feeling it's not anything that i thought about when i began it's not anything that i had a hope of even even as i wrote stories for get in trouble i was not thinking well these will be you know you know i will get great reviews for this i will be a pulitzer finalist for this that in the moment when that happens you think well this is this is like something out of it Daydream, but it's not even a daydream that I that I had.
1: Do you think that uh, genre fiction is at risk of losing something as it becomes more respectable within the wider literary community?
0: I think there is always a danger that um, a community or a significant portion of writers who work in a genre will begin to feel that they have to take themselves seriously. And you do, you have to take yourself seriously enough that even in early drafts, when your work is not good, you have to take it seriously enough that you think it's worth making it better. But you also have to, and I'm speaking for me, you have to allow yourself not to take it seriously as well. That when the expectation that you have, that the thing that you're doing is, um, that it's weighty that it that it matters in some large way to the world for me that would be um that would be that would be terrible i don't think i would be able to to work that way what i need to do is think what are the what are the things in here that i can do that would surprise me or give me delight or what are the things about people that i'm interested in and how can i write about those things and what are the things that I love best in genre work or in literary work? And and how do they how do they work together? I think that in one way it's great for a genre to be taken seriously. It means that the writers are paid better. It means they get a book gets more reviews, which has certainly been the case for me. And I want that for all of the books that I love. Um, but on the other hand, with 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 great with great power comes great responsibility with great uh, with great sort of, um, I guess, atten- with an enormous amount of attention, things get kind of rigid. You think, well, I I have to treat myself seriously. I have to, I think the fun slips away. And my feeling about books, about narrative is um, there has to be maybe fun is not the right word, but there has to be a sense of freedom or play in order to do things that will not only surprise the reader, but surprise you.
1: I mean, the book is the book is laugh out loud funny for hundreds of pages.
0: Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't, it's a long book. And once you write a long book, you can't expect that everybody is going to be happy about that. So you have to write the thing that you wanted to write. And then I'm a bookseller. I have a bookstore. You know, if somebody comes into the bookstore, I'm not going to try and hand sell them my book unless they really like a really long book that is is uh, drawing on a lot of fantasy conventions and tropes. Um, so once once the book is done, you know, you, you look at it and you think, well, I did the stuff that I wanted to do, but you have to let like, go of the expectation that that means that it's going to be for everybody.
1: Let's talk about the specifics of the Book of Love now. It's about three teenagers, and they're returning from the underworld, having died in mysterious circumstances, to their lives in a small town in Massachusetts. And they are tasked by their magical music teacher with figuring out how they died. Now, children and teenagers are everywhere in your stories and sometimes your books are marketed as young adult and sometimes they're not marketed as young adult why do children and teenagers continue to interest you into middle age and what kind of child were you
0: i was a kid who
1: read a lot uh
0: and who really liked the outdoors and malls i you know i was a kid in the 80s i liked being in a mall looking at all the weird stuff in stores i liked being outside in florida it's a great place to be outside catching lizards and things like that but i also i just read a lot i read a lot and i went for a lot of swims i realized during the period that i was putting together the collection get in trouble that i like to write a story that is about adolescence or about childhood and then i like my next story i like to work in the next story, uh, in the territory of middle age, that to have that freedom to oscillate, to go back and forth between those two registers and those two ways of looking at the world is pleasurable for me. But childhood and adolescence are liminal spaces. There are spaces where there's a lot of sense of possibility. I think the emotional, uh, register, of adolescence or even of childhood is wilder. Um, you Your feelings are extreme. And it's not that middle-aged people or old people don't have um, extreme feelings. It's just that swing is not quite as fast. Um, and so it's, to me, narrative attaches very easily to adolescence because people are figuring stuff out for the first time. They are finding communities for the first time. They are taking wild leaps. And especially in fantasy or science fiction, or horror even, that lines up with the possibilities that fantasy, that the fantastic presents. That I think there's something, and I, I don't mean that it just works as a metaphor, but there is something about the strangeness and newness and magic that exists in the real world that lines up very easily with the fantastic.
1: There is a, a a well-worn trope that children and teenagers can access the fantastic in the form of magic or secondary worlds, while adult protagonists in the same novels can't do that. Where do you think that comes from?
0: Well, I think I will mention my friend Theo Black, who assumed for most of his childhood and adolescence that greyhounds weren't real. He thought they were mythical creatures um, because he saw them on the side of the bus, uh, the greyhound bus, the same way that you see Peter Pan on a bus. And so the first time uh, as, you know, a a guy in his, maybe when he was 17, he saw a greyhound in real life. He said it was like seeing a dragon. (laughs) Um, He was just like, they're Real. Um, and I think that there are <laughs> aspects to that, um, that everybody has for as, as a, as a kid, you know, that you, and sometimes it's as simple as things as mispronouncing words because you, you saw them in books. You never heard anybody say them. And so the word has a certain shape in your head and then you say it out loud or someone else says it and you think, Oh man, I, I have that all wrong. And it's almost like something has, like a spell has shifted a little bit. But I think it's that that sense of discovery. I mean, even a book like The Hobbit, Bilbo is, what, 50? Um, but he's basically a teenager. He's going out in the world for the first time. He's making friends who are outside of his small group for the first time. He's having adventures for the first time. There's a lot of overlap already between the fantasy genre you know, somebody discovers that they're actually of royal blood. Um, or like the Peter Gabriel song, you know, they're hoping that a that an alien will come down and say, You're you belong with us. And that is, I think, that hope. It persists into middle age, but adolescence and childhood is the time that you begin to feel it and imagine things.
1: This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. Do you worry about getting it wrong as an adult and writing something that teenagers today will find cringy? Do you get real teenagers to road test your stories for you?
0: I have a teenager in the house. Um, Oh, that sounds so weird. Who am I going to observe? You know, not that all teenagers are the same. But yeah, I worry about that a great deal. And it may be, I've had a couple of reviewers or readers say, how do you how did you access this voice that feels so true and i think well you're in your 40s or 50s i am in my 50s how do you know that this is what 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 this group <laughs> of people sound like but i do i try and be careful but that does not mean even if in some ways some of the things that i am writing about the experience of being adolescent that doesn't mean that even ten years from now that it will not be cringy. It will be, um, and of course I'm drawing from my own experience of growing up as a teen in the eighties. Even if I'm setting a book in 2014, part of it is going to be drawn from personal experience.
1: Did you have a favorite character to write, or one that you felt closest to? Because as a reader, Susanna is hands down my favorite, absolute hoot. You could write a whole spin-off book about her.
0: Susanna was my entry point into the book and in many ways the character that I feel closest to because she is on the outside of major secrets. Um, She's estranged from many of the other characters. She has a lot of feelings. She's very angry and she doesn't want to do a lot of things. And she's dear to me because that's often how you feel as a writer. You're like, the plot is over there. My characters are maybe doing really interesting things, but I don't have access to that. You know, Drafting and writing the first version of the book, you're somebody like Susanna. Uh, You're kind of at war with your main characters, with your plot, and you're kind of mad about it as well. And you don't want to do it much like Susanna. You're like, I don't want to do things. I, I am so tired of doing things, of working on a book, that I would rather just lie here on a couch or in a bed. I would like to misbehave.
1: And she works in a coffee shop, the other classic uh, writer job. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) What what did you read growing up? And what appeal do myths and fairy tales continue to hold for you?
0: I did read a lot of myths and fairy tales. I had An enormous reader's digest, uh, bind up of fairy tales. I had the most incredible book ever called Strange Stories, Amazing Facts, which is a compilation of stories about things like the Titanic, uh, about Bigfoot about faces appearing in the tiles of a kitchen of somebody in Mexico at the turn of the century, and I poured over that like that was the Bible, you know. I was like, everything in this book is true, and I was a preacher's kid, so I sat uh, in church every Sunday and I read the Book of Revelation. Yeah, I read the I read all the the books of the Bible in part because church is boring and reading makes it a little bit more interesting. But I also, I loved C.S. Lewis. I love Tolkien. I loved T.H. White, The Once and Future King. And I think there's some T.H. White in this novel, not in terms of who the characters are, but in the idea that the characters are connected to the natural world and that magical transformation is, is something that characters or people
1: would have access to. What makes a good fairy tale?
0: That is a, that is a very interesting question. Um, I think what makes a good fairy tale is actually just the voice. You know, the voice of the fairy tale is matter of fact. There is not a lot of psychological realism. The characters are often tropes. Sometimes the story is very slight but you feel that you are in the presence of somebody who is telling you a, a story, who is giving you a pattern, and you know that it's not going to last too long, and you know that something strange is going to happen in it. And I think that fairy tales, ghost stories, gossip all have that quality, that, that they're, they're the kind of story where you could even begin it by saying, do you want to hear something weird?
1: This book, as the title implies, is as much a romance as it is a fantasy or fairy tale. And it's about romance novels as well as being a romance novel. And uh, fantasy romance we call now Romanticy, the fashionable new hybrid genre of the uh, of the age. Uh, why do these two genres fit together so well? And what did you want to say about love?
0: I think I wanted, and and this is going to sound so very basic, but I wanted to write a book in which love was the kind of glue that keeps people anchored to their lives and not, not only romantic love, but love of family, love of friends, um love of the kind of things that we have to do habitually uh like dishes or laundry, or just being able to exist as, as, a human being that when we do things with love that it it helps us it helps us survive. And the book is my not just about that kind of love. It is also my love letter to the romance genre. And again, I think that there is maybe an appeal to genres like romance or romanticy in which you know that certain things are going to happen, certain patterns are going to play out. And, and you read those books because you love those patterns. And I think there's something that those patterns actually have in common with things like doing the dishes or doing the laundry, that there is a kind of pleasure in uh, when you do the dishes because you're you're setting the world to rights a little bit more and you feel good about that. And in a romance novel, you know, no matter how wrong things go, in the middle, you know that things will be set to right by the end. And I think that that's enormously reassuring. It's the same as a, as a pop song, you know, that you, you know that the song is going to resolve, mostly in a major key. A, a piece of music is going to be about a certain thing. Um, and there are moments of surprise, but we recognize those structures.
1: It's a frightening book as well. What's horror good for? Why do we enjoy it? And what scares you?
0: I heard a writer whom I love, Mariana Enriquez, who wrote a phenomenal horror novel called Our Share of Night, say that she believes that what horror does is that horror creates a space in which the reader is able to feel the appropriate emotion when contemplating something horrible. She says that In real life, we are bombarded by catastrophic news, by horrific things happening, either to ourselves, to our friends, to people that we, we don't know, but we're, we're reading about them. And at the same time, we're getting advertising and we are reading somebody's funny jokes and we are seeing a cute dog eating a banana, you know, all of that stuff. And with a horror novel, you only you are able to sit there with a the feeling that when something horrible happens, that there is a way to feel about it. Um, and I think that's true of fantasy, too, that fantasy creates a space in which we are able to sit with a sense of wonder, that we are able to be delighted and surprised by something that we know doesn't exist in the real world, except in stories that people tell or in dreams. Um, and we are able to to feel this kind of profound sense of strangeness or delight and I think those genres fantasy horror, even romance are are genres that that say it's important to let ourselves feel things in response to a piece of art.
1: There are many very accomplished uh writers in the short story form who specialize in horror and weird fiction who have an overwhelming nihilism about them, and the nihilism runs through all of their work, like the word through a stick of Brighton Rock. But in your stories and in this novel, there is only warmth and kindness. How do you reconcile so skillfully the good aspects of of humanity, the kindness of humanity, human decency, all the wonderful things about being alive, with all of these frightening tropes and elements that we've just been discussing?
0: honestly, I have a hard time with that in real life. Um, that, that sometimes life feels like you are on a very narrow bridge over a chasm and you're constantly seeing people fall off that bridge into the chasm. And you know, at some point you will too, everybody dies. You know, it's not like it's a question. We, we know what happens to us at the end. Um, And I think that, I think that it, to me, it feels good to be reminded of both of those things that eventually we fall off into the chasm, but also maybe even in the moment that we fall, that there is surprise, you know, that we are, we are still the people that we were who felt delight, who felt joy, who felt warmth or or love, um, that you don't have to give up those things even in that moment that you that you fall.
1: Book of Love is set in Massachusetts. You live in Massachusetts, and Massachusetts is a magical part of America. It's the home of the Salem witch trials. It's where Lovecraft set his stories. Is that something you were consciously aware of when you were writing this book? I
0: did think a little bit about Lovecraft. And I live in Northampton in western Mass. My bookstore is in East Hampton. We are very, very close to some of the landscape that that Lovecraft wrote about. But I think that when I wrote this book, I was taking this place that I've lived in for 20 years, uh, which is eclectic, a lot of weird food, a lot of good bookstores, a lot of people engaged in the arts. And I was supplying in the book of love the one thing that we don't have, and I'm—I don't mean magic by that. I was putting it up against or up next to the ocean. I grew up in Miami. My husband grew up in Scotland, in air, so right by the uh, right by the right by the sea. And both of us are surprised quite often that we live in a very landlocked. Part of the state, um, and so I think that when I set out to write this book, I knew that I wanted the I wanted the ocean in it.
1: T- tell us more about that. What's the appeal of the ocean specifically?
0: I think it's a personal appeal. Although I, obviously, I'm not the only one who feels it. Everybody, or at least most people, like to go sit beside the the sea uh, once in a while. Uh, I think when I work, I'm always Happiest when I'm writing. I'm always happiest if I am near the ocean, or even if I'm just near a swimming pool. That being near water in some way uh, makes me makes me feel more fully present. And I think there is there is something. I hate reducing magic elements in a book to the level of metaphor, but I think there is something about. The transformative power of the sea, uh, that, that the sea is constantly changing, water is constantly changing, especially when it's in motion. And also that sense of power that you are right next to something that has tremendous power and represents a kind of danger, but also a kind of pleasure. And I wanted, I, and again, I think maybe this is because I was writing about kids. And when I was a kid, I was in the ocean all the time. And so maybe it was a point of connective tissue for me to put these kids there.
1: I know we alluded to this at the start, but it would be remiss of me not to bring it up again at the end. Can we look forward to more Kelly Link novels? Or are you a one and done kind of writer? Because I get the impression that you were uh, trying to do everything the novel can do in this book and succeeding. It's a very accomplished book. But with the view that you might not Ever get a chance to do it again.
0: I, I have a lot of pieces of another novel now. And uh, in much the same way that I, I am a reactive writer, I write a short story. And then I think, well, what are all the things that I could do that would be different this time? Um, and with this novel, I got to write a novel. And at the same time, I was working on a collection. Uh, and I think that my next project will be a very short ghost novel in a very different key that, that I want to write something that has a lot of mood, but that moves very quickly and, and feels more fragmentary. And the ghost story form is a great form to explore those possibilities with.
1: What would you say defines a Kelly Link story?
0: I don't even know if I am uh, the best person
1: to answer that question. Almost certainly not. It was a trick (laughs) question. (laughs) (laughs) Kelly Link, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much. This was a huge pleasure.
1: This episode of the podcast starred Kelly Link and was produced and presented by me, Vas Christodoulou. The show is made by Nicole Wong and myself, and John Daugherty is our editor. If you enjoyed this episode, my interview last week with another short story writer turned major novelist, Ray Naylor, is one you'll probably like too. Till next time, thanks for listening.